blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned dark night into day. He made his blazing saddle a torch to light the Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, this is Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. Our movie today is a little different in that I would have a hard time arguing this is a movie that's unknown or underloved or underrated, but the good news is I've kind of left this uh, show open, open-ended open with a format that I can talk about pretty much any movie I want, just if I think it will make an interesting show, and that's this one today. Our movie today, the 1974 Mel Brooks comedy Blazing Saddles, commonly known as one of the most beloved slash controversial comedies of all time, and we will be sure to get into that, but it's just one, there's so many interesting things going on in this movie, and there's so many things to talk about, and topics, and arguments, and just cultural things, and just concepts of comedy, that I just really wanted to delve into this one, and I have a fascinating story how we got here in the first place with my guest. My uh, guest today is a, uh, wow, he's a pretty well-known guy, this, uh, let's see, he uh, play, used to play in the NFL, big name, uh, personal injury lawyer down in Tampa. He was on the TV show Survivor. He's in the news all the time in that in the Tampa area from what I hear. I'm just very excited to have someone with this name recognition on the show. Welcome to the show, Mr. Brad Culpepper. Mario, my man. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> now, Brad, yeah, I, I, you were one of my very top gets for this show. I'm so excited that you agreed to do this. Although, uh, before we get into the story of how you and I met and how we ended up on this podcast, why don't you tell people out there maybe who you are and what you do? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> if I'm on your highest rated, well, then good luck with your, with your podcast. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, let's see. Uh I'm Brad Culpepper, and, and uh, I'm a lawyer here in town. And fortunately for all you guys who come to Tampa, you get to see me on the billboard. So you're welcome for all that. Um, <laughs> I'm very sarcastic, and that's why this is a very good movie for me to be uh, uh, breaking down. So half the things I'm saying are, are half-truths. So <laughs> take that as you, as you want. Um, but anyway, yeah, I've done Survivor a couple times. Uh, my wife has done Survivor a couple times. Monica, uh, we usually run into people at the mall, at the uh, in the airports. Although since I've done it a second time, people people give me a little bit of love. But before it used to be a lot of, hey, remember you guys on Survivor? I hated you, but I love Monica. So uh, that was kind of my claim to fame for a little while. I redeemed a little bit the next time I played. But um, so. I'm a lawyer here, but I tell you what, what I really am right now is a father of three kids. I got one son, Rex, who just beat cancer, and uh, he had testicular cancer, and, and he's back at Syracuse, cancer-free, got melted away with chemo. I got another son, Judge, who's a defensive freshman, defensive lineman at Penn State, and uh, he's uh, just started this fall up there. And then I've got my daughter, Honor, who is uh, a rising junior in high school, and She's uh, getting recruited by not Power Five Division One schools, but Division One schools nonetheless in, in basketball. So I hang my hat on on those attributes more so than my NFL and my lawyer and and, and my Survivor stuff. Yeah, and and you're a movie fan as well, correct? 
For sure. Quite frankly, when I started, you know, we, we rent a lot of more movies than we actually go to. Before we had kids, we used to go to movies all the time. But uh, but this one is near and dear to my heart. It's so, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say pivotal. I mean, it's just a comedy. But all my kids have seen this movie so many, they've seen almost all the Mel Brooks movies. But they can quote, you know, of course, they some have to bleep themselves out sometimes. But they can quote almost every line from Blazing Saddles. So, if you question my fatherhood, I mean, there it speaks for itself. All my kids can quote Blazing Saddles uh, pretty much wrote from beginning to end. See, that shows how good a dad I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that explain. I mean, that kind of backs up the story of how we ended up together. I'll just let people know I am, um, as a lot of people know, I write about Survivor and I have a website called thefunny115.com. And one of the articles I'm most known for, at least recently, is I did a defense of Brad where he was on the show a couple of years ago and he got really a, I would say, unfair story edit where it kind of painted him in a bad picture. And so I wrote this thing defending him, pointing out why he wasn't really a bad guy and how this edit just screwed him. And so somehow, lo and behold, you found out about this article and you contacted me about it. I did, and, and I appreciated it. What you say, and, and what you said was qu quite truthful. <laughs> now, now, that's not the uh, half of what you're saying being half true, right? That's the truth, right there. That's the truth. <laughs> okay. That's the truth. As far as as far as as far as you know. Yeah. Well, if if half of what you say is half truth, then you're only telling one fourth of the truth. I just figured that out. Maybe that, or maybe I'm telling the whole truth. You got to really break down that math. It's difficult. I'd make it. I'd make a good. I'd make a good uh, a citizen from Rockridge. Not make much sense. <laughs> okay, but uh, what happened is, yeah. So Brad uh, heard about this article and contacted me and said, "Hey, if you're ever in Tampa, come out and I'd love to have uh, have lunch with you and we'll talk about it." And just in a fortuitous, you know, turn of events, I happened to start a new job in Tampa, like literally a month after that, which. I'd never been to Florida in my life, and it was just this funny turn of events. I ended up meeting Brad for lunch, and what I wanted to mention is that we sat there, and we were going to talk about Survivor and life and just, you know, him being a media figure, but we got distracted because we spent at least an hour of our lunch talking about Mel Brooks movies. Well, I mean, and that was a fantastic lunch. I, if I could go to lunch and talk about Mel Brooks movies, I'd go, I'd go to lunch a lot more often with people. <laughs> well, yeah. It's uh, because this this podcast at the time was just kind of a, an idea in the back of my head. I wanted to get people on and talk about movies they love, and I really hadn't planned for it or how I was going to do it. But the minute Brad and I were talking about Blazing Saddles and History of the World, and he has a very similar background that I do just with comedy movies and just knowing the history of comedy movies, that's how it all came about. And I said, hey, do you want to be on my show? And he's like, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And so that's really how Staff Pick started, because Brad agreed to be on my show. And I'm like, well, I should do the show now. That should be fine. I already got a verbal commit. Well, good deal. I'm glad I was instrumental in starting your show. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a good idea. Listen, there, there are a lot of movies. You know, kids these days, I guess with Netflix and everything else, maybe they check out some old movies. But, I mean, this is one. Um, you know, I, I take pride, and I'm being, I'm being serious now, uh, you know, when my kids were growing up, I would make sure they knew who Led Zeppelin was and they knew who Jimi Hendrix was. And they knew the Beatles and they know. And so they, they, they know all of that. Uh, the who or you, and during little league practice, I would always make sure, you know, uh, a historical rock and roll group was on. So they would not just know, Oh, I don't know all those crazy named people. Now, not that I'm against it and I'm not one of those old buddy duddies, but you need to understand where it all came from. Um, it's the same way with movies and it's the same way with comedies and everything else. There are plenty of fantastic comedies out now. I mean, anything where Will Ferrell's in or, you know, I mean, he's such a funny, funny guy and, and Sacha Baron Cohen and 
there's there's some really funny things out there, but they needed to understand from an early age. I don't know history of comedians, and you know I think Mel Brooks is is I don't know if he's a, a face on uh, Rushmore on comedy, but he could be. There's an argument that he could be, and and, and the humor is is a little bit dry, a little bit you're not going to really catch it, or it's not going to hit you funny until after you've turned the show off. But um, I, I don't know. It's it, it's hard to explain. You either get Mel Brooks or you do not. And if you do not, it's hard to hard to make somebody get him. Yeah, and and I do the same thing. I was very insistent from my kids being an early age that they watch comedy movies in particular. I always am trying to get them to understand fundamentals of comedy, how comedy works. And I didn't do the music thing as much as you do, but my wife does that. My wife is the music person. And I, is is Monica involved? Does she have any uh, input into the kids' uh, pop culture upbringing? It's, but... Probably. Yeah. You know what? I should say musically, she's a 70s girl, so she knows every single 70s song by heart. So their their knowledge of that comes from her. Um, it's funny. Monica in in college before we met would not have been a Mel Brooks fan. And hmm. now we've been married 26 years and her her uh, comedy tastes have definitely moved in my direction. Um, she was a bit more literal. um back then and then still probably more literal than me now not quite as sarcastic but she gets me and, and, and it's always it tickles me when she gets me sometimes uh saying something that's real sarcastic with a straight face and i'm like uh, my young padawans come along <laughs> um you know she she's much more into mel brooks type humor and my type dry humor than she ever would have been had we never met so you juvenilized her. You lowered her standards I, of comedy. I have. I have. But you know what? It helps her understand her kids. It's funny. So my daughter uh, is beautiful, looks like my wife. Um, however, her mindset is me. Matter of fact, she would be unbelievable on Survivor. If she went out there, she would be so manipulative and so, you know, she'd smile. And, you know, un unlike me, you know, I got to do it with all, all my mouth. I, I My looks <laughs> aren't going to get me that far. But she could do it, and, and she's she's a killer, but she is super sarcastic. And uh, matter of fact, I think she likes the Mel Brooks movies. You know, she's 16 as much or more than my guys. Although I shouldn't say it. They love them, too. But but she's <laughs> – this is her straight up. And I think it's – I don't know. It's not the typical teenage girl attitude, and, and she's kind of got that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And my daughter is the same way. My daughter has a really wicked sense of humor, and she loves stuff like The Office and Mystery Science Theater and mm -hmm, just really mm -hmm. that off-kilter comedy. And I, I've always tell her, because she, she never knew anybody like her in high school. She's like, none of my friends like this stuff. And I'm like, just go to college. In your college, you'll meet all the weird, smart people that know all this right. comedy. And she was shocked when she got to college, and she knew nobody there that likes this stuff either. So I, apparently I lied to her. No, it's so funny you say that. My daughter was coming back from... Uh, basketball trip with Monica and she got her picture taken in Tampa airport and she sent it. We have a group text with Rex judge and Mo Monica and I, and she, she got a picture taken with Packer from, uh, uh, uh from the office. Todd Packer. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so she goes, I look at who I'm with Packer. And I was thinking, Oh my God, there are not many 16 year old girls that would get their, get a selfie with him. It was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. I think Packer legally is required to stay away from most 16 year old girls. I think if he's Packer, he would be. 
<laughs> but yeah, the the sentence that Brad won me over, this is near and dear to my heart, this sentence that Brad said when we were at lunch. He's like, my kids know all the words to the uh, Inquisition song from Mel Brooks' History of the World. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Because that's like one of my all-time favorite movies, and that was the original idea for this podcast, although I'm going to tell people this is really a two-part podcast. Brad wants to, he wanted to come on and talk about Blazing Saddles and History of the World, and this is just the Blazing Saddles one, but like... He's actually teaching his kids the Inquisition song, which is such an odd thing for a dad in 2018 to be teaching his kids. But that's the no, same wait, thing. No, wait, wait, I didn't. I, I didn't teach them. They learned it themselves. They're such. Good, they're all smarter. I mean, they they uh, have photographic memory, so they have to watch it once. I have to watch it like 30 times to be able to send in the Jews. Uh, but but they watch it once and they've already got it. So uh, while I did expose them to it, I didn't make them memorize it. However, they did. And uh, it's really funny. And, and they every time it'll be on TBS or sometimes, whoa, 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 dad, let's, let's sing it. And I'm like, oh, you know, or they can sing Madeline Kahn's uh, um, I'm So Tired. They know all the words of that one, too, from Blazing Saddles. You know, Mel Brooks once said that's the dirtiest song he ever wrote. So I'm not sure that's one I want my kids singing. Oh, it's totally. It's time. But, but uh, they, I, I, they'll they'll be doing something athletically or something. They're so I'm so tired. And I'm like, oh, my God, don't don't do it. <laughs> So, so your father of the year status maybe is up in in, in doubt sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that you said that I find uh, fascinating and people may find this interesting is that you told me once when you were in college, you were you know you were a big athlete and stuff, but you were always trying to look for someone like your teammates to go to these Mel Brooks or comedy movies with you, and you could never find anybody because athletes in general aren't always the biggest comedy fans. Is that that's true, right? Well. They may be, but they're more – I mean, I'm being stereotypical now. And, and so a stereotypical meathead football player, mm-hmm. it's slap your face. It's got to be in your face kind of funny. Um, you know, everybody liked Eddie Murphy and, 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 you know, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, he's a legend and everything else. But those guys weren't as kind of off-kilter. And I would say that's for the most part. Now, I had a couple friends that, that are – in fact, my very best friends, a guy named Kirker Patrick, All-American in Florida, and he's a huge Mel Brooks fan, and he and I were right. Maybe that's why we were best friends in college. But we were few and far between. For the most part, you know, it was more – and not that I don't like the Three Stooges, but it had to be more Three Stooge type. And Mel Brooks is, is that way, but, but he's that way in a different way. It's, it's kind of hard to explain. But they – most athletes are – pretty black and white when it comes to music and it comes to basic things and they're not really wanting to go to some kind of bizarre art fest type gig and as a matter of fact like this weekend there's a uh you know they've, they've got all kinds of deals coming to tampa and, and comic-con and all and i'll head to those things not that i'm huge into anime or anything like that but it's a different walk of life and i can appreciate that and i don't know life's too short not to kind of smell the roses and see all kinds of gigs you're usually too busy antiquing, correct? I'll do that too. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's uh, now my wife and I do that together. That's uh, definitely for fun for both of us. <laughs> okay, I will. Um, one thing I wanted to say before we delve into Blazing Saddles, particularly, is that I've, I've done a lot of comedy writing, obviously, and I do. Most people know me as a writer, and anyone who knows me on Staff Picks kind of knows my history that I just obsess over comedy movies and the history of comedy movies and stuff, but. Blazing Saddles is kind of an interesting one in particular and why I think it deserves its own show. Just because I think um, I was just reading a, 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 a description of comedy the other day that said there's something really interesting when you find a comedian that's really willing to be dangerous. 
They'll go right up to that line of danger and they'll skate all over it, like just on the side of good taste, bad taste, but never quite crossing the line where they turn the audience off. And that's the one thing that I see, especially in these early Mel Brooks movies, that how willing he was to go to that line of danger and just dance around it gleefully. And that's not something you would see in a lot of movies today. Like he himself has said, there's no way this movie comes anywhere near a theater nowadays. Yeah, no, especially not with political political correctness the way it is. And and actually, but but what what people don't fail to understand, and and if you watch this movie on a superficial um, in a superficial way, you're not going to understand that. Yeah, there's crass language, and yes, there's themes that that maybe aren't aren't, aren't going to work today. But it's a lot deeper than that. In fact, it's 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 a parody and making fun of how people. Of how superficial, dumb things, certain things are, it gets a lot deeper and gets, you know, more comedic. You know, when when a guy like Richard Pryor, who co-wrote Blazing Saddles, I don't know if many people know that, mm-hmm. but I mean, he was on the edge of comedy his whole career. Um, but that's why, you know, this movie is written by a Jewish guy and a black guy. And and so it's both anti-Semitic and, and you know, obviously there's harsh language um racially in it as well however it was written by those guys and and that explains a lot Mm -hmm. yeah and i was gonna say mel brooks specifically said i have a quote from here here from here him here he said uh i really wanted to just go out there and make a mockery of racism intolerance and bible beaters he goes i just hated seeing those people i hated the attitudes and he just wanted to skewer them as hard as possible and he specifically this was a five-person writing team and he went and told them he says here's the general plot of this movie just write it and he said do not make it a polite movie make this not polite at all and so like that's the thing like you it it comes from such a good place and like he's trying to make a good point and he really does i'd argue this is a very successful movie at what it's trying to do but it would be taken so literal now if they showed it on tv that they just couldn't do it and that's i don't know what that says about us that we've come to a point where we just can't even joke about this stuff anymore where he was joking and richard Pryor was joking to make a good point well i you know i i kind of like it and i don't want to get political on this thing but i mean it's kind of appropriate right now because sometimes i feel that I don't know. Some people that go to certain rallies are the people like at Rockridge mm-hmm. um, and are the conservative way right. And there's a lot of hypocrisy and, and ignorance in regards to certain political things these days. And uh, this movie is definitely taking a jab at, at I don't know, ignorance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, it's just... I, again, I don't want to get political on it, but I, I'm a, I'm, <laughs> I'm very left, so maybe I'm, I'm skewed uh, against the right. But, but to me, that's what this movie's all about. It's kind of saying, okay, look at, look at the sheep. Look how dumb some people are uh, that, that think they are more than they are. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't even know if it has to be political. I'm fairly right, and I 100% agree with you on this one. Like, it's, I just love this movie. I love everything about it. I love how dangerous it is. I love how provocative it is. I just love how clever it is. And actually, there's a great quote here, too, because... I know, I mean, obviously most people have seen Blazing Saddles, and so they know how many N-words are in this movie, how much racial humor is in there. I mean, it's just all over the place. And there's a quote here where people always say on the online, well, Blazing Saddles hasn't aged well, or it wouldn't be made today, or it's dated. And there's a great quote I read here. I want to get your opinion on this, Brad. Some guy said, 
Oh no, Blazing Saddles has aged perfectly. It is our age that is tainted. This type of comedy with no barriers and no taboos was as close to full integration and equality as we will ever get. Our generation today is too soft and infantile for the likes of Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor. Well, I, I, I can't disagree with that, that response. Um, it's funny. It reminds me of a Charles Barkley quote uh, when he talks about, you know, he, got, he said something like the locker room is the most insensitive, uh, racial, um, homophobic, um, uh, and I don't want to say anti-woman, but, but uh, misogynistic place he's ever been. He goes, boy, I miss the locker room (laughs) (laughs) because you really, I don't know. Humor can go in so many different ways that when you're going out on a football field and you're sweating, blood, sweat and tears with, with your teammates and you're putting it on the line and you trust them. And it's, it's probably like the military would be a locker room too. Um, but it's like being able to be, have fun and tease about stereotypes and stuff like that. Um, you gotta have thick skin. You gotta be able to take it and, and you can't take it for more than what it is. Uh, and understand it's probably the intent behind everything and the intent of, of the humor is to make fun of things like that and, and make fun of people who take things so serious and to make fun of people that would really say the things that they say in this movie and mean it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, are, are you serious? I mean, they say it in this movie to make it, they say the N word in this movie to show how stupid it is to really use it. But unfortunately there are people that really use it and, and really mean it. Um, you know, I mean, when, when the old lady, <laughs> walks by him and she's mad and she's up yours and then later on he, he saves the town from mongo and and uh she bakes a pie for him for for, for apologizing for the up yours and and uh, you know I, I have a there's a buddy of mine on the buccaneers kind of kenny gant black guy from florida won a super bowl a couple super bowls with, with dallas cowboys and i had blazing saddles on in, in a camp in a, in a preseason camp and kenny walked by and he, somebody goes is that Blazing Saddles? And I'm like, yeah. And I was a little bit like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Kenny goes, that's a, my most favorite movie in the entire world. He sat in and we watched it two more times and we had a black. He laughed every single time something like that happened. And it, it just I love Kenny to this day just because he gets it. Yeah, I remember specifically a thread on Reddit just a couple months ago where I was reading. I was researching for this movie and someone who's like maybe 17, 18 year old, years old saw Blazing Saddles and they're like, I thought it was funny, but I thought it was really insensitive racially. And he goes like, oh, I wonder what black people think of this movie. Are people offended by this movie? And it was funny. It was just, you know, all these black people that had grown up with this movie, one after another, all responding and saying, I love that movie. That is the funniest movie. And it's like one of the few movies that kind of handled racial uh, uh, humor the way that it really would have been in the 70s. Like it had some realness to it. And I I found another quote where Richard Pryor, the same thing, where, you know, Mel Brooks had written this script. And like you said, Richard Pryor was a contributor to the script and he was like a consultant. And they brought him in. They they said, like, what do you think of this movie? And uh, Richard said, I like it. It's real. And that's the word he used. It's real. This is how people talk. And Mel Brooks is like, should I use all these racial slurs in the movie? Do you have a problem with that? Like, is that too far? And Richard's like, no, that's not too far because that's how the bad guys would talk. So don't water it down. Don't tone it down. This is the way the bad guys talk. They're the idiots in the movie. Like, you're making a point. So that's exactly what he, that Richard Pryor backs up that point. I love it because this is, you're speaking the way these bad guys would talk. No, and, and, and the, the, the heroes of the movie are not the townspeople and not, you know, 
the, the, the idiots are the ones who are using all the, the derogatory statements. You got Slim Pickens, who's, you know, the big idiot. You got, you got, uh, um, I don't know, Harvey Corman. Um, uh, oh, what's the guy, guy's name? Um, Lyle. Burton Gilliam. Yeah. The actor's Burton Gilliam. So, so all those guys are using all the language and, and then the townspeople and they're all the idiots of the show. They're all the, 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 the foils of, of the, the two heroes, which are Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. And those guys never do use any kind of a poor language. And they're the heroes. of the show. They're the smartest ones there. So it makes the ones that are using the, the, the foul language and the racially insensitive stuff. They're the foils. They're the they're the dummies of the show. And, and that's, in a sense, why it all makes sense, because. The smart ones are the ones that are not as stupid <laughs> as the ones who are using all the language. Well, yeah, and then what's even more interesting as I was reading about this one is that, you know, hidden behind all these, you know, racial jokes and racial politics and this in, in the offensive humor is the fact that, you know, Mel Brooks put out a huge blockbuster movie with a black lead as the hero, which was very right. odd for that time. And so people don't really notice, like, he was kind of, you know, breaking down barriers by doing stuff that you weren't allowed to do in a movie at that time. So I think it's very shallow just to focus on just all these, you know, N-words and racial language when there's a, a bigger picture here with this movie in particular. No, it was, well, you know, and, and but, they, you know, they, they play into stereotypes, Cleavon Little or Bart. I mean, he's got all the style with his Gucci <laughs> bags and his Gucci outfit. And he runs into Count Basie in the, in the desert. I mean, <laughs> I mean, who would think about that? I mean, I can sit around the room and say, all right, let's do this. All right, so Bart's going to be coming into town, and uh, before he hits town, let's, you know, he's going to be playing the music, right? So he's riding his horse, and there's music, and he's out west, and, you know, kind of like a John Ford-type uh, searchers-type area, and all of a sudden he's going to come up, and the music is actually Count Basie and his band playing the music in the desert, and he's going to give him five and go on. <laughs> It's like, yeah, let's do that. That'll that'll work perfect. I, I just the put my mind in in the in Mel Brooks and all the writers for this movie. Just it makes me giggle. And then it's like, you know, all right. And the Mel Mel, all right, you're gonna be you're gonna be an Indian in this one. And 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 you're, they're gonna go out west. They're gonna ride in a circle. And then you're gonna make a, a derogatory statement like, boy, he's blacker than me. <laughs> uh, it's just all those little different you know nuances in the show. Then, then of course, what's funny, you know. And I don't know if we want to delve. We, we can go by plot or we can do whatever. But it's funny. So whenever I tell somebody I, I love, you know, Blazing Saddles or whatever, Young Frankenstein or what have you, every time people, maybe it's more of a white thing, but every time people think of Blazing Saddles, they think of the beans scene with Mongo and, and, and the gassing it up around the campfire. It's funny. That's, that's all everybody remembers from it. I mean, it's funny and all, but. I don't know that that would be my first thought of that movie. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because that ties perfectly into my story I was wanted, I wanted to tell. Um, this movie came out in um, February 74, a little before I was born. I was born in April of 74, and you're a couple of years older than me. So, like, you probably wouldn't have seen this in the theater, right? No, I was born 69, so no, I was five years old. I, I didn't see it until I think it maybe came on TBS or something. <laughs> so your parents weren't as, as liberal with the uh, the crazy R-rated movies as you are with your kids. Yeah, they would have they would have let me see, but it was I definitely was five years. I would have been four four or five years old. I wouldn't have seen it then. But they, they they let me see a couple, but no, not definitely not as much as well. I think all everybody grows up. This this day and age, kids are way older than than we were at, <laughs> at 15. 
Yeah. What I wanted to say is that, like, I didn't grow up with this movie. I wasn't introduced to it until later. My parents were very strict, no R-rated movies in the house, and Mel Brooks is about as R-rated as you're going to get. So that <laughs> they were not something we were willingly being shown. But I will say my mom was this small-town girl from a farm, Port Angeles, Washington, not a... Uh, not exposed to a lot of super sophisticated, you know, really high level comedy as a kid. But she would tell me, she's like, you know, I love stuff like Dr. Zhivago and stuff like that and Lawrence of Arabia. Those were her favorite movies. But she would always tell me the funniest thing she ever saw in a movie theater right. happens to be the scene that you just mentioned. And she would tell me this as a kid. There's this farting scene in Blazing Saddle. She's like, I fell out of my chair the first time I saw that, Mario. So this was this legendary scene I grew up hearing about this. Oh, there's cowboys sitting around and they're eating beans like in every Western movie. But Mel Brooks decided, well, if you had coffee and beans, you'd fart a lot. So let's put that in a movie. So for I mean, most people, I'm sure, know the scene. But my mom would just build this up in my head as the funniest thing she had ever seen in a movie. So that was my introduction to Blazing Saddles. I knew it as the farting movie. No, for sure. And my kid, well, and, and my kids, when they first saw it, they were young and they laughed and laughed and they saw that. And, you know, I guess, you know, kind of like Dumb and Dumber when, when old boy has the X-lax in the bathroom, they, it, when they saw it, they <laughs> thought it was a funny scene. And it, and it is funny, make no mistake, but there's just a lot more to the movie than just the, the farting scene. And I was thinking back, you know, and I meant to say this too, when we were talking about, you know, the, the smart ones versus the dumb ones, it starts out early when, uh, you know, Slim Pickens and, and Lyle come running into the, the, where they're building the railroad. And, and uh, you know, they talk about, oh, you know, you're not, you know, break time's over. You're not going to get no sun, no how. And then he says, all right, why don't you guys sing us a, a spiritual? And uh, they say, you know, sing, sing the Camp Town Ladies. And they're like, Camp Town Ladies? I, you know, I don't know what you're talking. And then they break into, I get no kick from champagnes. Ooh. Beer, alcohol, I mean, you know, a, a classic song, and and uh, Slim Pickens, no, 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 come on, you know, Camp Town Ladies, they're like, the Camp Town Ladies, I, I don't know that, and then they start whooping around, and they're all doing that dance, like, uh, my kids, even even when the movie's not on or something, they'll start dancing like the Mel Brooks, like those, those <laughs> cowboys in the, in the, in the uh, singing Camp Town Ladies with their hands in the air, and it is so funny, and again, it's the it's the dumb ones that are doing the things that would be stereotypical down on the other side. And it's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's get into the plot of the movie. We'll walk through this fairly at a fairly high level here. I don't want to go into every little gag, but I just want to, there may be, I have a lot of young listeners that may not know of this movie or may have just written it off or think, unfortunately there's a lot of, of a thought process out there. Like, Oh, the movie's like before 1990, it's too old. I don't want to watch it. Right. But, yeah. But this one in particular is special and I'll just, I'll paint a little picture for people that Mel Brooks in 1968 wrote a movie, which is clearly one of the most dangerous ballsy comedies of all time. The producers, which I would assume you're a fan of that one, right? Uh, everyone for sure. Yeah, so the producers is about, I mean, Holocaust humor, which if you think Blazing Saddles is ballsy, think about that one, how soon that one came out after World War II. And then this is really his follow-up to the producers. There's, there's, there's another movie in the middle. I forget what it's called. He did one in between. But this is considered his follow-up. So it's like, how do you how do you top the producers? <laughs> like, how do you follow that up? And he goes for this one, which is just this crazy, crazy racial, you know, making fun of the Old West uh, parody. And it starts right off the bat. And I would say this movie maybe has one of the funniest probably first 20 minutes of just about any movie I've ever seen. It starts off so strong. 
Oh, it's 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 amazing. These my kids can start. They can monologue everybody's line all the way to where the the handcart sinks, or you know, till they till they go to Har- till they go to uh, Mayor Le- uh, uh, Governor Lepetamain. Um But yeah, they're <laughs> it's a tip. It's just a, it's like even with the music, it, it's great Western music in this in this movie. So as it starts, you really don't you know you wouldn't differentiate it between any other western the way it starts but then obviously the dialogue comes in and and you got a lot of chinese people who are building the railroads you got the blacks and the chinese working and you got the typical white overseers come in and and uh they're they're laying uh rail uh and and i mean i i could monologue the whole thing but you uh, i i wouldn't want you quote me on any of it <laughs> And if you could take people could take things out of context, so you're not going to catch me with that. So you know, and then one of the funniest parts is when they're saying, "Hey, there's some there's some quicksand down there. We're having trouble laying the rail." And and uh, he says, "We'll send a couple of horses." And 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 so I'm thinking, "Horses? We can't afford to lose no horses." You know, send a couple of and they use the N word. Um, and and that's when he you know looks at he picks Cleavon Little Bart and uh, his buddy. And he goes, uh, truth be known, uh, you asked specifically for, you know, the N-word. And he goes, uh, my, my mother, my grandmother is Dutch. Again, and then Lyle says, get, get. And it's just one of the fun. And then they, of course, they're singing Camp Town Ladies as they're pushing the handcart down to the, down to the uh, uh, quicksand. And then, they, and then the other funny line my kids love to say, we say this all the time, when something happens or, you know, somebody loses something, and they'll be, we'll always be like, dang, we just about lost a $400 handcart. Uh, you know, when the black guys, of course, are sinking too, and they're like, handcart, use the word of the handcart, not us. But so anyway, and, and you, you can take, but anyway, it talks about, and then it goes back to the governor's mansion, and and uh, I think Cleavon Little gets out and, and bashes one of the guys on the head, and so he gets taken to the, to the governor, and they're, the governor, which is Mel Brooks, is trying to figure out, well, I'll tell you what, you can you can tell it. I mean, I don't, I don't know how in-depth you want to get or not. Basically, he figures out a, a scheme to, to run the rail through, he's got to run it through Rock Ridge. Yeah, I'll do a quick overview here. I don't want to, again, there's so many good lines, I don't want to spoil it for people. I want people to experience this movie for the first time, especially that opening scene. Right. But yeah, just for an overview, I mean, just how how's this for a ballsy movie? I can't imagine anyone would go anywhere near this storyline nowadays where literally they uh, <laughs> there's this railroad, it's going to go through this little town called Rock Ridge, and all the surveyors and governors know this. They're like, well, the railroad's going through this town, and that's instant money. You know, the minute the railroad goes through the town, all the land values go up. Land snatch. Land, land snatch. snatch. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, land. See snatch. <laughs> so they need to chase these people out of town. It's the old Scooby-Doo treatment. We got to scare them out so we can go in there and buy the land before all the railroad values go up. And they try to frighten the, the uh, parishioners off, and it doesn't work. And so they come up with a plan: is we'll send them a sheriff to protect them who's so offensive that they will either shoot him on sight or flee the town. And their criteria for someone who will horrify everyone is that he's black. So that's really the plot of the movie. We'll send them a black guy and they'll kill him. Some some great performances here. We got Harvey Corman as this corrupt attorney general, Hedley Lamar, and he's the one that sees the money. You got the dollar signs in his eyes. I need to I need that town. And there's a great understated scene as he's talking about how much he wants that land and he's literally he's dry humping a statue as he's giving his monologue, which I don't think I caught that as a kid. Oh yeah, that one was good. Meanwhile, the the executioner's out back hanging the the horse and and the, and the other guy, mm-hmm. you know. And then he he's like, uh, you know, they brings out the, the the 
red ball paddles and, and uh, yeah, those little red devils uh, talking about Indians. And maybe they'll bite. Maybe they'll bite. I can get a harumph out of him. I mean, there's so many lines in the whole scene when he's and he's got his little uh, big bosomed secretary. <laughs> well, that's straight out of the producers. They use that same gag in the producers too. Yes. With Inga. Yes. Um, oh, I was thinking. My my kids also say this. Uh, they're. <laughs> Um, but talk about the number six dance. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, what about the women sparing the women? No, we we chin out on the number six dance, and, and uh, my, so my kids will, they'll they'll be I'll say, well, where are you going tonight? And Rex will say, we're we're going to a number six dance, and uh, it's kind of funny when they say that. <laughs> yeah. Again, you'd have to see you have to see the movie to understand what the number six dance is. We'll pull a number six on them. This is when we come riding into town, a whomping and a stomping, everything within an inch of its life. Ah, sparing the women? No. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Well, well, much like much like the movie digresses in the end. I mean, there's a big surprise when they break the, the was it the third barrier or fourth barrier? Uh, what is it? The fourth wall? I think that it's, that's what it's called. Yeah, they. I, I would argue this movie it's really good for about half. I don't really like the second half as much. Like, I don't think it holds together as a narrative as strong as it should. Which is, as 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 other Mel Brooks movies go, I think Young Frankenstein I probably like overall more. But I think it's at its high points, nothing beats Blazing Saddles. Uh, but but even the you got to rewatch the back parts when you got Dom DeLuise, you know, as Buddy, uh, who's a typically kind of gay guy, and then. You know, they, they break through the wall and they're in Universal Studios and, and, and uh, you know, come on, uh, you know, this, they hit Buddy. And it's just, I don't know, it breaks into, it's almost the best way you could finish a movie like that because it's not serious. I mean, it's totally slapstick and it's like, you know what, let's go ahead and finish it out with the most slapsticky way you can do it and break the fourth wall down and just have them go to a huge food fight at, at the commissary on, on Universal Studios and then, They'll go back to a movie theater to see how it ends. I mean, it's 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 almost perfect, Mario. I would argue opposite of you because there's no real way you could finish that movie the way it starts so strong in a, a constructive way. There's no kind of Hollywood. You can't you can't make the ending real. You've got to make the ending absurdly unreal to make it actually work. Yeah, I mean, I do like how how uh, crazy it gets at the end. We'll we'll get there in a second. We'll we'll talk okay. about the end. But yeah, it's it's it always strikes me as a movie they couldn't figure out how to end it, so they just go, "We'll we'll make it as crazy as possible." Because, like you said, there really is no way you can end it. Right. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't I mean, you couldn't have you know obviously the good guys are going to win in the end, and they don't end up taking rock you know the the, the Cleavon Little at Bart and and the Waco kid figure out how to keep them from capturing the city. Um, but that's that's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, again, I, I'm not Mel Brooks. I'm Who am I to criticize Mel Brooks writing the right, most right. famous comedy of all time? In fact, do you know how big this movie was? I just read this today, that it was so big in 1974 that they released it the next year, too. It came out two years in a row just because the studio didn't have anything else to release in 75. I had no idea. That's interesting. Yeah, this is a huge hit. Again, for all these arguments, all oh, people, they wouldn't watch that today. It could not be released. I'm like, this would be a huge hit if they ever brought it back. But yeah, no one would want to sign the insurance waivers for <laughs> liability. No, it's almost like it's almost like Mel Brooks, when he when he did this movie, he's like, you know what? If, if it's going to be questioned or probably going to be uh, censored, put it in there. <laughs> so it's like, he's like, throw the book at him. I, I want this to be so outrageous that you know, it'll pass everything because it's too, it's too outrageous to not put on the air. 
and it, it worked. Well, here's a quote. Here's an exact quote that backs up what you said. Mel Brooks, I think, told his writers, he says, write anything you want, put it all in there, because we'll all be arrested after this movie. <laughs> I actually, you know, it's funny. I, I forgot that I'd done this. Mel Brooks came to Tampa about two or three years ago, um, and we went. And I took all three kids, and we sat at uh, the Performing Arts Center, and they had a showing, an airing of Blazing Saddles, uncut and everything, and it was packed. Mm-hmm. packed. I mean, and the place holds a ton of people. And uh, then Mel Brooks came out afterwards. Now he's gotten kind of old, and um, but he was still funny, and and uh, it was a kind of a question and answer type thing. But, I mean, I, I think my kids, I, I took them to Raiders of the Lost Ark at Old Tampa Theater when it came, well, it didn't, well, not when it came out, but they made had a re-showing, and all the kids remember that. And I swear, seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater and seeing Blazing Saddles in the theater were probably two highlights of their movie, uh, you know, seeing short lives. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, see, I always have moments like that where I see they re-release a movie and I want to take my kids to it. The ones that I want to, I've always wanted to do was Rocky and Rocky Two. I want to yep. see those in a theater with a live audience. I just think that would just be like Goosebump Central. It was. I I saw them. I saw Jaws in the theater too Ooh. back when it came. I was young, <laughs> um, but but I saw and they came out close to the same time. Uh, Rocky and mm-hmm. and, and uh, Jaws, and I was blown away by both of them. Um, didn't wasn't able to see the godfather uh, in the theater um but clearly saw him afterwards at home but just trying to think of uh, you know uh, star wars and close encounters the third kind i saw both those in the theater and those were pretty uh, impressive as well yeah well i just had recently a similar thing we're kind of getting off the topic but this is interesting but when uh they re-released titanic in theaters a couple of years ago and then they did avatar they give that a second showing and i'm like I don't, know what, I don't know what you think of the movie itself, Avatar, the plot or anything, but like the special effects, if you could see that in the theater one time. Yeah. So like I, I made sure my kids saw Titanic and Avatar on the big screen just so they could say one day that they did. No, for sure. I, I totally get, I mean, it's it's much more spectacular, you know, in an IMAX or on a big screen than it would be in, you know, small TV. And kids these days, they're, they're, they're just looking at everything on their phones or on a tablet. I mean, you, you can't appreciate that movie on any of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a whole different world. All right, so let's go a little bit back here to Rockridge. We only, I only wanted to do about 20 minutes on the plot of this movie because, again, I want people to experience it. But let's talk about the people of Rockridge for a moment because I would say this is my particular most underrated part of Blazing Saddles, and it's the part that nobody ever talks about, all the little Rockridge jokes. Well, for the first Rockridge shows, everybody's named Johnson. <laughs> yes. You know, you get, and, and then, uh, you know, I agree with Arnold Johnson. Larry Johnson agrees with, with Howard Johnson. And he's one ice cream scoop, uh, which is and I think Howard Johnson is actually Higgins from uh, Magnum P.I. Oh, wow. That's Higgins. I didn't catch that. <laughs> oh, yes, that's Higgins for sure. Uh, Higgins Johnson is right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the old frontier gibberish. My kids will say that all the time. Yeah, I was going to quote him. This is my that's my favorite guy. There's a uh, for people who don't know, there's this uh, prospector named Gabby Johnson, and he Gabby just li- yeah, he just literally speaks in frontier gibberish. They even call it that. And what are some of the words he uses? He calls people a sidewinding crocker croaker. <laughs> I wish the kids could have heard that. It was authentic frontier gibberish. <laughs> and he's got a word whenever he is agreeing with someone. He's always like, rabbit, rabbit. <laughs> right. Well, he's the one up in the bell tower uh, who, who first notices Bart uh, and is quite alarmed that Bart's coming and uh, informs them all that, that he's near. But, of course, he's not saying he's near. He's using the N-word, and everybody thinks he's saying near. And then uh, 
Higgins uh, from Magnum P.I. Uh, greets uh, uh, Cleavon Little or Bart uh, with a laurel and hearty handshake, which is uh, I, I, I always say that. I always say that, too. Well, here's a laurel and hearty handshake. <laughs> I love the audacity of that joke because it's so stupid. And I love Mel Brooks will do that for you know, people our age get this. But for younger people, there was obviously a big co- there was a comedy team named Laurel and Hardy back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. So <laughs> I had to explain that to my kids because I was laughing to and they go, what are you talking about? I go, And so then I delved down. And I, I think I Googled something and I found uh, uh, who's on first. Um not that that was – was that Laurel Hardy? No, that was Abbott and Costello. Abbott and Costello. Right. That wasn't Laurel Hardy. But anyway, so they then memorized who's on first from Abbott and Costello. So actually Blazing Saddles led to, to Laurel and Hardy that did uh, Abbott and Costello, and they know who's on first too, which is good. <laughs> Um, well, there's one, there's a couple jokes in here I wanted to point out just because they were referenced in other movies. There's one scene in this movie where Mel Brooks is talking with his bunch of like governors in his mansion and they're all, you know, just angry and, and shouting. They're like, harumph, harumph, harumph. And Mel right. Brooks literally turns in someone, to someone and says, I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. And the guy's like, harumph, harumph. And it's just one of these things as a comedy writer, just when you're playing with language and stuff like that, that I love in movies. And they referenced that in a later movie. I did, I did a uh, the Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Brains, on staff picks a couple months ago. And there's, Gosh, a, I think I saw that in the theater. I, I, I haven't seen that in forever. Yeah, there's a, there's the. It's very uh, hard to find. It's very obscure nowadays. But there's a scene in that where they reference this, where uh, uh, they're murmuring. They're they're at a conference and someone has some great great discovery about brains, and everyone in the audience goes murmur, murmur, murmur. And they point out, are they? What are they saying? Oh, they're just murmuring. And it's literally just the harumph joke. So it's like a homage to Blazing Saddles. For sure, for sure. I, it, that, that's a classic scene in both. <laughs> yeah, and then the other one here is a, the scene that you mentioned earlier when the sheriff arrives in town. So many great jokes, and there's two in particular I wanted to talk about. The you have the the prospector up on the uh, side of the town. He's got a, a telescope, and he's telling everyone, "Our new sheriff, who has come here to save the town from the bandits, is here." And he's literally shouting, "The sheriff is an N-word." But you know, for the all bell rings. yeah, but the bell keeps ringing. So every time he says the N-word, the bell rings, and it gets drowned out. And so they hear the sheriff is a, and they're like, "Oh, the sheriff must be near." The sheriff is a nick. What'd he say? The sheriff is near. No, God blame it, dang woman. The sheriff is a nick. And so that's one of my favorite quotes. And I will say, you know, for as liberal as Mel Brooks has thrown the N-word around, I love that one of the joke, the, the most prominent jokes in this movie is showing him showing restraint and not actually saying the word. You just think you're hearing the word. Right. Well, the, the, the next line that, that I love on that whole scene is, is when uh, Cleavon Little gets up on stage and everybody's mortified that he's black. And he says, excuse me while I whip this out. And he you know pulls out the bill, the proclamation that he's the sheriff of Rockridge. And all the women go, ah! And they, they all like faint when he says, excuse me while I whip this out. Oh, my gosh. That is so funny. Yeah, try explaining that joke to your kids when they're six and seven. No, I, I, I don't know. I must have because they laughed at it. <laughs> okay, I have to just say something that we're going to veer into bad taste here. But I, that joke, I've always loved that joke. The excuse me, I whip this out. He reaches down his pants. Everyone freaks out. 
And that joke is so much funnier when you kind of realize the context of humor and just uh, racial stereotypes at the time. And I just, just, I have to say this because I literally just read the book Black Like Me, which was, I forgot the guy who wrote it, but in the 60s, it came out. You know that book, right? Yeah, I do. I've not read it. Okay, but he has a chapter in there where he's, you know, this guy, he's a white writer and he, he dyes his skin black and he travels around the South. And there's, he has a whole chapter in there about white hitchhikers would pick him up and talk to him. And he would just say, it was amazing to me how fascinated white people were with black people's genitals, black male genitals. He goes, it was like every single guy I talked to asked about it. It was the weirdest thing. And that's like what the big stereotype on white black relations at the time is that all white people thought that black people are hugely endowed and very, very willing to whip it out and show you. So just when you read black like me and then you go to this movie, which only came out like a couple of years later, that joke is so much funnier when you realize what they're making fun of there. That's what the white people expect the black guy's going to do. Right. Well, I, I like it's almost the response or, or the way the women faint or are, are, are just out out outraged it's just so funny then of course when the they pull out everybody pulls out their guns and uh the reverend pulls out his bible and says uh you know put everything down and then they shoot his bible and he says son you're on your own <laughs> again yeah that that scene is my personal favorite in the movie i love the first one with the hand cart i just love all the interplay and just how they make the racist uh train people just look yeah, I silly. like that camp town the camp town lady dancing is pretty strong on my book well yeah I mean because it's it's kind of very meta there not only are they you know the black guys the smarter people in the scene and the white guys are the idiots they literally make the white the, the uh, railroad people do it like a, a slave dance and the slave song is the black guys stand there and just laugh at them <laughs> Correct. Correct. No, it's 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 awesome. Yeah. So anyway, people who have never seen this movie, the first twenty minutes, your mouth will be open in shock and your jaw will be dropped to the floor that they were allowed to do these jokes in a movie. But you just realize it's it's serving a much better point. <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. So anyway, I'll just race through this movie. We meet Gene Wilder in there. He plays the Waco kid, and there's a lot of. And he tells him, you know, hey, what, what do you like to do? Uh, play chess screw ah let's play chess then (laughs) (laughs) that's great i love that that's a wonderful mel brooks joke right there (laughs) yeah but there's a nice little buddy picture component in this with cleavon little and gene wilder you get the white and the black guy you know they get along right from the start because they're the two smartest guys in the movie so again it's just just historic in that movies were not doing stuff like this at the time so while it seems just like a silly racy comedy there's a lot of really interesting stuff mel brooks was doing in this movie that you may not notice until you pay attention or you look at it in historical context. No, I know for sure. And, and, and it's too bad that those guys didn't team up for other movies. I think, I think their chemistry was fantastic. Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little. In fact, Cleavon Little's a great actor. He ended up in a, I think he was in Fletch too, maybe. Um, you know, every now and again, I'll see a movie that he's in. I'm like, Oh my God, there's Cleavon. Of course he's died. He's died since uh, I think in, in 10 years ago or so. Um, but anyway, you know, you know, I guess Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder kind of had a, a buddy buddy thing. But but I tell you what, Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder, I I love them together. Yeah. Do you know the history of Richard Pryor in this movie besides being a writer? Were you aware he was supposed to star in it? I, I did. I was. I knew that. But but uh, yeah. Why did he not? Because it it would have been too focused on him no because the studio was very concerned with richard pryor for people who don't know richard pryor was the 
you know, edgiest comedian out there, very, he'd walk just like Mel Brooks right up to that line of good taste and he'd dance around it and try to make it funny. Oh, yeah. And they were very concerned about him, the studio. They thought he was too political, a little too offensive, and they were worried because I think he had a drug habit as well and it was kind of well known. Well, I don't know. And, and I, quite frankly, they needed that character to be endearing. And, and I don't know that Richard Pryor didn't have that kind of yeah. endearing quality about him that Cleavon Little totally did as an actor. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. So, you know, I think while Richard Pryor, Pryor, you know, is a fantastic comedian, I think they, they hit it head on. I think they, they were spot on about not having him do it. Um, if he in fact was going to, and apparently there was somebody else was going to be, I think, uh, the Waco kid. Yeah. It was an older guy. Yeah. And he was just drunk the whole time, literally drunk. And, and, and he did, he showed up on the set and they're like, we, we can't do this. And I think, uh, um, Mel Brooks called out, called Gene and said, Gene, last second, can you come down and try to do this? And he was kind of like, oh, I'll, I'll try. And, and I, you know, they probably lucked into getting those two actors and it made the movie perfect. Yeah, and I was going to say it's really interesting from a comedy history perspective, you know, how one thing begat another, how it leads to another, is that I read somewhere, yeah, he called in Gene Wilder as a favor to play the Waco Kid, and Gene Wilder's like, well, okay, I'll do it, but only if for your next movie you do this script that I've been working on, which was Young Frankenstein. Ah, <laughs> so, yeah. So that's how that comes about, and then I think the dynamic between Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder was so strong that they wanted to recreate that, and they ended up with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, which I'm guessing is a callback to Blazing Saddles, and with a more comedic bent, because obviously Cleavon Little, for people who don't know, was a like a Shakespeare actor. He was a he stage was. guy. He was. He was a real actor. Yeah. Uh, you know, not not that comedians aren't real actors, but but he was. Yeah, he was a, a stage actor. Um, I mean. Was it the first black-white buddy movie? Well, there was uh, In the Heat of the Night, the one with Sidney Poitier. I'm not sure. I haven't. Yeah, but 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 is that 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 wasn't that was a serious movie? It yeah. wasn't a comedy. It wasn't it wasn't like a. I mean, even, even uh, Lethal Weapon, you know, is somewhat serious, but it's still a, a buddy comedy type movie. I swear, I think uh, Blazing Saddles was the first kind of comedy buddy type movie, black and white. It very well could be. I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head and I don't yeah, cause know. Cause I, I thought about, you know, in the heat of the night too, with Sidney Poitier, but, I, but that, that was more of a series type gig. Um, than it was kind of a buddy, you know, rom-com type deal. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, uh, so Cleavon Little just never gets the credit that he deserves for really being a prominent member of kind of uh, black actors being accepted as lead roles in Hollywood movies. Because I, I didn't even think about that if this was the first one where it was a, like a buddy movie. I, I can't think of anything before then, but you can think of a lot that after, of course, most of them with Richard Pryor and, and Gene Wilder, Stir Crazy and, and uh, you know, and then, and then, you know, Richard Pryor started carrying his own Brewster's Millions and just other other movies. You know, there there weren't many black lead actors, you know, until that point. So, I mean, he had black exploitation movies with Shaft and stuff like that. But as far as you know, big time studios, Universal or Paramount or what have you, it, you know, this was kind of the beginning of that, wow. which makes sense. I mean, Mel Brooks is smart like that. Yeah, he doesn't. Mel Brooks is is uh, you know doesn't see color at all, or doesn't see you know race or anything. I mean, everyone's equal, or, or you know everyone's fair game for his humor which is actually equalizing yeah and that's again though that review that i read earlier that like uh it was actually more integrated back then because people just accepted this is kind of the humor and like now it's like much more uh uh self-conscious people are more self-conscious about it in movies but yeah mel brooks would just go for it 
Well, no, then it's more deep down. This movie is way more derogatory to white people than any race. Mm -hmm. I mean, because the white people are the idiots. And they're totally the ends. But unfortunately, we know people that are just like all the all the people in this movie. <laughs> well, yeah, the Waco kid, there's a really ballsy line in here that I kind of forgot about it until I watched it this afternoon, where Gene Wilder even says it to Cleavon Little. He's like, you you know, these people in the town, they don't know any better. Like, they're not going to accept you right away. Remember, these are just the common clay of the U.S. You know, morons. <laughs> You're right, I forget that. Yeah, so Mel Brooks is taking a not veiled dig at most of America right there. <laughs> For sure. And when, you know, when Cleavon gets himself out of the trouble by pulling the gun on himself, you know, and nobody move her, he's going to get it. And uh he comes in his room and he goes, "I am so good, and they are so stupid." <laughs> yeah. And again, you can see, you can see why, you know, black kids growing up watching this movie would love it so much because there's no other movie that would have shown the black hero being the smart guy outwitting all these idiot white guys. That's unless you're going to like the black exploitation movies, it just wasn't something you were going to see a lot in these mainstream comedies. No, who else would would uh, bring a telegram for Mongo? <laughs> yes, he invented the candy gram and he didn't even he get did. credit for it. Those bastards. No, for sure. <laughs> Okay, just racing through the end of the movie, we got, uh, uh, what's her face? Uh, I always forget her name. Madeline Kahn. Madeline Kahn. Big, big name in this movie. This is the movie that kind of shot her to big success as a comedian. She did pretty much every Mel Brooks movie after this. I love her in the history of the world, especially as Empress Nympho. But this is the oh, one, yeah. yeah, this is the one she's most known, known for. Although I will say, I have a hard time watching this movie at home because my wife hates Madeline Kahn. <laughs> really? She just cannot stand that voice. So I don't know. She's got a, she's got a loud voice, but she can sing. Yeah, she's good. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yes. No, 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 no. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He is a eunuch. He is dead. <laughs> yeah. It's we'll we'll get to the history of the world because that's. I know. I know. Uh, I agree. But uh, yeah. So Madeline Kahn again shot to success because of this, and I read somewhere that uh, some reviews of uh, this movie, I think even contemporary ones when it came out, were saying, you know, Madeline Kahn was kind of this undiscovered star, and Mel Brooks just gives her this amazing dialogue and great characterizations, and they're like, no one was ever better to comedians than comedians than Mel Brooks. Like, he absolutely oh, sure. just wrote stuff right in her wheelhouse, and she made a big career out of this. So it's like, so many careers kind of came out of this movie, I would say. No, for sure. I love her line, and Cowboy, what's your name? Tex, ma'am. Tex, ma'am. <laughs> Who else do we have in here? We have Alex Karras, a uh, former uh, uh, fellow, Mongo. Yeah, fellow NFL player. Have you ever met Alex Karras? No, and he's dead now. Uh, I never I never had met him. Um, uh, God, it reminds me. I think I have a shirt that I got a long time ago that says, uh, Baby, please, I am not from Havana. <laughs> uh, when she wants the smorgenschnogs and another time <laughs> now Ale uh, yeah oh, i was gonna say alex karras was also in webster a totally different role yes he was no um he was he played for the chargers i believe and so a lot of those like freddie dreyer played for the rams and ended up being hunter and so back back in the 70s and 80s you know there were a lot of nfl ball players i think rosie greer ended up going into acting and he was he played for the for the rams as well Team players who played for the Chargers and, and that Southern California area kind of merged into the Hollywood a little bit. And that's what uh, he was also um, uh, Alex Karras was also in um, uh, Against All Odds. Oh, OK. I didn't know that. 
Did you know that movie with with uh, uh, Jeff Bridges? Yeah, I, I do know the movie. I forgot he was in that. Oh yeah, he was. He actually goes in the, in the cave uh, and tries to get him out, and I think they kill him in the cave. Hmm. Uh, he's the coach. Uh, was it uh, that uh, Rachel Ward? Isn't she the girl in that movie? <laughs> I, yeah, I just did a movie about her, or was starring her on uh, staff picks called Fortress last week. <laughs> Listen, Rachel Ward was so hot in, in uh, Against All Odds. You need to you need to re-see that one. I'm telling you, and Jeff Bridges is great looking. I mean, he's young and lean. He plays a receiver with a bum knee, and uh, you got um, uh, uh, what's the actor Woods? Uh, James Woods. James Woods is like the heavy. He's like the owner or the president of the team, and uh, oh man, it's great. It's a it's it's a it's a really good movie. But um, anyway, Alex Karras is in that movie as well. I was just thinking of former NFL players that made movies, and I remember John Matuzak, of course, with the Raiders. So, yeah, it backs, it backs up all these California guys. And Matuzak was in the Goonies. Yes, and also the classic Caveman with Ringo Starr. Ah, and Barbara Bach? <laughs> yes, and Shelley Long. It's quite a cast. Yeah, I think, didn't, didn't, didn't Ringo marry Barbara Bach? <laughs> yes, he did. Yes. <laughs> Peace and love. Way to go, Ringo. Yeah, for sure. He's a Beatle. Can't blame him or her. <laughs> I think they're still married, too. That's like an incredibly long marriage. It really is, I, you know, especially since he's like 106. <laughs> okay, so, again, well, I'll, I'll kind of leave out the details for the end of this movie because we're kind of wrapping up the podcast here. But, yeah, the again, the good guy, Black Bart, saves the day. All the town begrudgingly accepts him. He outsmarts the bad guys. Although, I have to mention before we finish it off, the, the scene with the Klansman, the Ku Klux Klansman. Yes, that's a good one, too. Why don't, why don't you paint the picture for people who have never seen this movie or haven't seen it in a while? Well, uh, yeah. they, 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 so, so all the, the – to, to run the, the, the townspeople out, they got to get a posse together. And so they got all the – they're trying to get all the bad, worst people in the area and the world. And so they've got a, a lineup that they're, they're taking their names to see if they're worthy of becoming part of the posse that's going to run the people out of Rockridge. And you've got bikers, you've got the the, the Mexicans, uh, typical Mex Mexican gang people. You've got uh, Nazis, which obviously <laughs> aren't in existence at that point. You got the Ku Klux Klan, which is not existence point. And so they they uh, Cleavon Little and and, and uh, Gene Wilder are trying to infiltrate this group. So they they see the Klan's guys, and, and uh, Gene Wilder holds up Cleavon and says, "Hey boys, hey boys, look what I got here." And Cleavon Little says. Where are all the white women at? And so the two clansmen come running over, and then they, of course, go behind a rock, and you hear, and then all of a sudden, the two clans people come back out, and they're all obviously hooded. And uh, uh, Cleavon and, and, and Gene Wilder have, have beat up the two clansmen, and they've taken their spot. Of course, when they get to the front of the line, uh, they're – uh, uh, Mel uh, Slim Pickens is, is uh, kind of questioning Cleavon Little's dirty hands. And uh, he's going, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. And, he, and, and then Cleavon Little turns his hand over and says, oh, no, no, it comes right off. Look, this pulls my hand. And uh, it's pretty funny. My kids always love saying one of the one of the bad guys in there says, All right, what are you saying? He goes, rape, arson, murder and, and rape. He goes, oh, you said rape twice. He goes, that's ah, my favorite. <laughs> and one guy has gum in line. He goes, do you have a piece of gum for everybody in line? And he says, uh, no, I didn't know there were going to be this many. Boom, shoots him and kills him. <laughs> yeah. And there's a great line there where Black Bart has been expo exposed as a fake Klansman and they're all going to kill Jesse him. Jesse Owens. Yeah, and now my next impression, Jesse Owens. <laughs> he runs away. 
No, I, I, and, and then and then so then they get away and they've got to figure out they're gonna they're gonna not to throw away the plot of the movie, but they've got to trick the uh, raiders from going into a fake town. Uh, so, but they need time. And so they come up with a plan. The only way to, to, uh, to, to get more time to keep the Raiders from coming into the real rock Ridge while they build the fake rock Ridge, uh, they come up with the plan with the toll booth. And that is another famous, famous line where, where Slim Pickens comes up and he sees there's a toll booth. Of course, there's a, the toll booth is in the middle of the desert and any person with half a brain or one tenth of a brain would say, okay, I'm going to walk around the toll booth. But of course they will go up to the toll booth and go, how much? And it says, it says a dime and, and, and Slim Pickens turns around and says, dimes, somebody's got to go back and get a load of dimes. And uh, so they wait in line, but it slows them all down enough for Rock Ridge to build a new fake Rock Ridge. Yeah. And again, just this crazy ending, a big fight, everyone fights and brawls and the, the movie literally, they spill out of the set into like a stage of a, like a, a sound studio in Hollywood. It just this crazy ending that you kind of have to see to believe it's, I, I yeah, you kind of no. won me over when you when you talked about it, Brad. I, I, now that I think about it, I actually kind of like the ending a little more. <laughs> I, I, I I do too, and I you know what? Quite frankly, when I first saw it, I didn't know that I understood it. It was silly, and I got it. But as I've watched it as a as a mature adult, <laughs> I kind of get. I was like, wait a minute, this is perfect because it's just so absurd, but yet it still makes fun of certain things uh, with with Universal and 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 you know people watching and gawking and and. Uh, I, I don't know. It's perfect. And then, then, of course, at the very end, they have to go to a movie theater to see how the movie ends. But, of course, because it, it's in the movies, right? Yeah. And Mel, Mel Brooks used that joke again in Spaceballs, where he literally watches the movie on video to see how the movie's going to go. That's a, he kind of recycles his own joke here. He, he does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, you know, and then, and then, of course, in the very end, they end up riding off into the sunset. Although they get in a limo. In a limo. No, they start out on horses. And uh, it's kind of emotional. They got some good music playing. And then they're clearly in like uh, Monument Valley or somewhere. And then so they ride their horses off and you think they're going to ride off into the sunset. And then all of a sudden a limo comes. They get off their horses and they get in the limo and they take off into the sunset in the limo, which is apropos of nothing but everything. <laughs> OK, two things to wrap up this uh, this discussion of Blazing Saddles here. The first one, do you know which movie shared a filming location with this one? There's two movies from the almost the same era that were filmed on the exact same set. Do you know the other one? <sighs> okay. Um, and uh, would they be Westerns? It would be a Western. Yes. Mostly a Western. Um, and it was filmed around the same time. Yes. It wouldn't have been any Clint Eastwood movie. No. Think more science fiction. God, you know, one of the Silverado is not old enough to be there. Um, I will give you a hint. They recently remade this as a TV series. As a TV series? Well, it's like an internet series. I'll, I'll give you the answer. Westworld. Ah, that makes sense, and I love me some Westworld, too. Yeah, they filmed Westworld and Blazing Saddles on the exact same set, so when you look at Rock Ridge, that's the same set. You know what? I, that's funny you say that. I have not seen the original Westworld. Wow. Um, I, should, I should have known that. Now, now I've seen every single episode, and I get online, and I read all the, the stuff about Westworld, uh, the new one. But I've seen snippets of Westworld with Yul Brynner. Um, I've not seen the whole thing, but as I'm thinking about the snippets I've seen of it, um, 
you're absolutely right. That is Rock Ridge. And you're saying there's another movie that's out there? Well, Rock, I was saying Westworld. That's one thing I wanted to say. But the other oh. thing is that about the theme song for this movie, one of my favorite bits of trivia about Blazing Saddles, is that they wrote Blazing Saddles. Mel Brooks always does the songs. They wrote a Blazing Saddle. I mean, I haven't heard that song in a long time, but anyway. Yeah, and it's a great song, but they gave it to this famous Western singer, Frankie Lane, and he sang the hell out of that song. Like, he puts yeah. all this emotion and spirit in it, and Mel Brooks is like, later, he's like, I didn't have the heart to tell him it was a comedy. So the guy had no idea he was singing for a comedy, and that's why this, the song is so majestic and grand, and that's why just Mel Brooks liked it more that way. He's like, yeah, I just didn't have the heart to tell him it's a silly little comedy movie. And it's, quite frankly, that almost makes the movie, because it, it, it opens up with the, the, the majestic music, and there are times, you know, when, when, of course, when Bart's coming across the desert and Count Basie's kind of playing the music, that it, it's kind of like, I don't want to, you know, it's obviously not John Williams, you know, Star Wars and, and, and you know, Rocky and, and movies are made, uh, Chariots of Fire, movies are made because of soundtracks. I mean, it just a good movie with a great soundtrack makes it that movie that much better. And I'm telling you, this movie would not be as good if it, if it had a hokey. I mean, it, the words are kind of funny, but it's a real theme song to like a real Western. And it, that's what makes it ironic or sardonic or whatever it is. It, that's what makes it work because... It seems so serious, yet the movie is so silly. Well, yeah, and Mel Brooks has always just been an underrated songwriter. People don't, I don't know if people realize how many songs he puts in his movies over the years. I mean, yeah, he became a Broadway producer later, but he had years of writing these movies. Like, you think back to Springtime for Hitler. That's a great yes. song, too. I mean, that's that's for a sure. full-on Broadway song he was writing back in the 60s. And then we go to the History of the World, which obviously has the, the Spanish Inquisition song, which we'll get to on the next show. Yeah, but so sure. he's very underrated as a songwriter, much as, as I always say, Trey Parker is from South Park. He writes fantastic yes. songs, and people don't, I don't think, realize how good his stuff is. Well, that, and then, and then old boy, um, Family Guy, McFarlane. Oh, McFarlane, yeah, he's great. Oh, he's, he's, he's an unbelievable musician. He, he's, he's, he sings, uh, you know, opera music. He's one of the best opera singers around. He's unbelievable. <laughs> wow. Well, so I think we've pretty much covered Blazing Saddles. And again, most of my listeners, I'm sure, are aware of this movie. But I'm hoping we gave you reasons to appreciate it even on a different level. Some of the stuff we've talked about, just, you know, the first black and white buddy movie, um, just one of the very first Hollywood movies with a black lead, like like as, as a, the hero is the comic guy. He's like the smartest one in the room. Just so many things going on here behind, or beyond just a silly, you know, racial comedy. This is, it's one of these movies that really, I think, should get more respect than it really does because people again just remember oh it's the comedy with all the n-words and the fart scenes right no and 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 i you know quite frankly mario when we met the fact that you appreciated that movie spoke a lot about who you are and it's whenever i meet somebody and they we can coordinate on 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 book likes or music likes or movie likes it uh i don't know it kind of speaks volumes somebody's like they get it because if somebody didn't get that I don't know that, that I could, we, we would be buddies. <laughs> yeah, it would be superficial friendship. For sure, for sure. Yeah, again, I met Brad, and it was like we knew each other all along, which was kind of 
shocking because there aren't very many people that I know in the world that I kind of meet right away and we start talking about movies on a like a very deep comedic level so it was really cool and again like uh like you've been in the NFL I'm just some programmer in California we have no no our back histories are not the same but it's just neat that we had this thing to talk about and there was even another one is that my dad was a personal injury lawyer and I was raised in his office I know all this stuff about personal injury because that was my world (laughs) and and like my dad I mean to this day I know if I get rear-ended in a car accident don't ever say I have no injuries I'm like my dad trained me well No, for sure. Always, always grab your neck. Yeah. So, so I'm saying as a person, and Brad is a personal injury lawyer himself. So we had this connection as well. Although, just from you as a personal injury lawyer yourself, the scene there's a scene in this movie where there's a guy on a horse, and Alex Karras walks up, punches the horse, and the stuntman falls to the left underneath the horse. The horse and the guy goes down. As a personal injury lawyer, you must cringe when you watch that scene. Someone had to get hurt in that scene. <laughs> Well, actually, as an animal lover, I, I, I cringe when I watch that scene more, though. But I know he didn't hit the horse. But <laughs> that, that's quite a famous scene, too. I forgot about that one. You can't park, you can't park your steer here. <laughs> yeah. Because he's coming in with a huge bull. Uh, that, that, that's his mode of transportation. And uh, he knocks out the horse in order to get a spot. Yeah, and it's the stuntman who really takes the hit when you watch it. He gets trapped under the horse. You know, I don't. I don't think I noticed that before. I have to, I, I'm always watching uh, Alex Karras or Mongo. Uh, by the way, uh, Steve McMichael, great defensive lineman for Chicago Bears, was uh, defensive. His nickname was Mongo, and I swear he was a friend of mine. We played the same position, so and he was a little older than me, but he was kind of one of my idols. You know, in football, big kid from big guy from Texas, and uh, but anyway, he was Mongo on the '85 Bears, and uh, he got his nickname from that. <laughs> Now, do you know who wrote most of the Mongo dialogue and characters in this movie? Well, specifically, I wouldn't know. I will let you know. It's a Richard Pryor. No, I was going to say, I, I think Richard Pryor did a lot of things, but, but that, that would have been my guess if you'd give me multiple choice. Yeah, yeah. I was just reading that the other day that they brought Richard Pryor on as a script consultant and he wrote a bunch of jokes and they thought that he would help with a lot of the racial jokes, but he didn't really want to touch those because those were already strong in the script. So he mostly just did Mongo. So almost everything you see regarding Mongo is Richard Pryor's contribution. (laughs) Well, kudos to to all of them. Yeah. So anyway, anything else you want to add before we sign off here? Any final blazing saddles thoughts before we move on to the next episode and we start thinking about history of the world no just if you watch watching blazing saddles for the first time understand it's 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 stronger than than you think it is don't watch it on a superficial level watch it and appreciate it and and understand the writers understand you know the motivation behind why somebody would make these jokes and make this movie like this because that's that's why it works so well. Yeah, and especially think about it in the context of when it was made. I mean, this right. is an early 70s movie. It's it's pushing some barriers here that you're not going to see from that time period. So it's it's really, really ballsy, even more ballsy than you think it is. It, it, no, no, it is. And, and unfortunately, in 1974, it was a lot closer to, to segregation than, than we are now, mm-hmm. um, which makes it that much more poignant then because I think it, it made you understand how stupid people's opinions and separate but equal and all the, all these things that were, were had just been eliminated before then um you know it, it really stuck a fork in in somebody's you know thought processing how could you think that separate would be equal um you know so mm-hmm. that that's kind of what this is all about and and it pokes fun at the people who would actually think that well yeah and that's 
that's the thing. Like, if you really want to make fun of something or really want to take down an idea or just a concept, you mock it. You make fun of it and you just make it comedic. And so that's why you see, you'll still to this day see the argument, oh, you can't show Blazing Saddles on TV. You just can't show that. I'm like, why not? Like, yeah, it, you, 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 hit, you, you hit the nail around the head when you said mocking something by making it funny is actually defeating it. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, so again, that's one of the reasons I love this movie, and again, I'm so excited we got to do it, and again, this isn't really necessarily a movie that's unknown, like, I've done some really obscure movies on the show that, like, me and my co-host were the only two people, I think, who have ever seen this movie, so this one's at the other end of the spectrum, but I think this is a fun episode, and I hope people liked hearing us talk about it, because again, this is, we're recreating literally the conversation that Brad and I had at dinner, or at lunch in Tampa that one day, so <laughs> it's it's more natural on a podcast than it is in a restaurant with people around. Around. yeah for sure for sure <laughs> okay brad i just want to uh thank you for stopping by i know in the future we'll be doing history of the world part one i really hope people enjoyed this episode this is a little different style a little different format than i've done but again just one of these i was really looking forward to and um brad just so excited that you had the time to stop by uh, mario i appreciate you having me i look forward to the next one i hope i didn't let you down with this one <laughs> no you did great thank you very much uh as they say thank you brad culpepper yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> okay, and again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. You can reach me, staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there looking for more underrated or underloved movies, and I will try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Hey, where are the white women at?